very warm welcome to you all. Um, don't you just love it when you turn up somewhere and the, and the first thing someone says is they make an announcement about toilets, which I have to do, I'm afraid, because we've had a, a power cut here this afternoon, and which is still going on, where we, we have lights on generator. Um, so if you need to use a toilet at any stage, find a, par a parliamentary pass holder, <laughs> and they can be your special friend, and, uh, and if they'll have to escort you to the nearest toilet. Anyway, after that exciting announcement, I'm, I'm delighted to welcome you all on behalf of the Christians in Parliament All-Party Group, Bible Society, and RLM Pinsbury, who are the hosts for tonight's event. My name is Mark Harris. I'm the Parliamentary Officer for Bible Society and for Christians in Parliament. Christians in Parliament exists to contribute to all areas of policy discussion through written reports and events such as this one, and also to support Christians of all denominations in both houses and putting their faith into practice in public life. Bible Society was established in 1804 by William Wilberforce and, and others to encourage the wider circulation and use of the scriptures. Today the Society works to promote the availability, accessibility and credibility of the scriptures with 140 other partner societies in over 200 countries around the world. And RLM Pinsbury provides advice to clients all over the world on their communications with governments, financial markets, media, employees, and other stakeholders, and advises many of the world's leading companies. The purpose of tonight's event is to examine, in the light of the global financial crisis and the policy responses to date, what more remains to be done to, to promote the healthy functioning of the business and finance sectors for the good of everyone? If you are a tweeter, by the way, the hashtag for tonight's event is ethics and finance. We're delighted to have a wealth of expertise on our panel tonight to consider these issues. Robert Peston, the BBC's business editor, has been one of the leading global commentators on the financial crisis since 2008. And last year he published a book which analysed the causes and potential solutions to the crisis, entitled How Do We Fix This Mess? Lord Miners has been one of the leading figures in the financial and corporate sectors in the past 20 years, and he's served as the government's financial services secretary during the first phase of the financial crisis between October 2008 and May 2010. Jane Ann Gadia is the CEO of Virgin Money, and uh, she has been uh, a leader in uh, calling for a cultural change in banking, uh, as well as leading the acquisition of Northern Rock. Dr. Paul Mills is an economist, a leading thinker in the area of ethics and finance, and he's published a number of articles for the Jubilee Centre on what the Bible can tell us about business and finance. Andrea Ledson, MP, is our chair for the evening. She's the MP for South Northamptonshire and is a member of the Treasury Select Committee. She will uh, chair a panel discussion and then there will be time for audience Q&A. I must also say that there will be a division uh, at some stage um, where um, MPs will have to leave us and then come back again and uh, there may also be uh, divisions in the House of Lords. Finally, we're delighted to have here with us this evening the Archbishop of Canterbury, 
the Most Reverend and Right Honourable Justin Welby. He's particularly well qualified to address this subject, as prior to his ordination in the Church of England, he spent 11 years in the oil industry, in the latter part of that as group treasurer of a major oil company. And he's also been a member of the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards. So I'd now like to invite Archbishop Justin to uh, begin our evening by outlining his thoughts. The Archbishop of Canterbury. he didn't say the new Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> it's still at the stage where, uh, as I did the other day, uh, I was sitting in a meeting and uh, a particularly difficult problem, nothing to do with this, came up and um, I said to one of the other people in the meeting, I, I think this is actually beyond us, we need to ask what the Archbishop thinks. <laughs> <laughs> the meeting went significantly downhill. <laughs> I'm very grateful for the invitation to be here this evening. I have to say I'm feeling, I was, I've put in my notes, rather outgunned by the panel. I'm actually feeling totally outgunned by the panel, particularly Robert Peston, who I've been reading about to try and, uh, reading, whose articles I've been reading and blo uh, blogs I've been reading for some years to try and find out what was happening. So he would probably do a much better job than I would. Definitely not. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> First disagreement. Um, I also want to make the normal two caveats. Uh, one is um, that what I'm essentially doing is a think piece, and it may not even be my final thinking. I'm not sure if I represent anyone this evening, even myself. And uh, I certainly am not giving the official position of the Church of England or the Banking Standards Commission. I just want to be clear about that. And the question I was given is, how do we fix this mess? long-term solutions to the uh, financial crisis. And that implies that we, there's a we somewhere who can fix the mess. And I don't believe that's the case for starters. I think it's a very much more complicated process than that. If there was someone who knew how to fix it, they certainly wouldn't be in this room they'd be on their yacht or island and at the top of the rich list. The mess, I want to suggest, is essentially one of confidence, much more than of the mechanics of the mar markets. The symptoms in the markets have been those of a failure of confidence. And historically, as probably most of you know better than I do, economic crises are a major problem when they're severe, when they are accompanied by a financial crisis and a breakdown in confidence, then they become a generational problem. And historically, the great failures in banking have led to very, very long periods of recession at best. And I would argue that what we're in at the moment is not a recession, but essentially some kind of depression. And it therefore takes something very, very major to get us out of it in the same way as it took something very major to get us into it. Building confidence is essentially, I'm also going to argue, 
an ethically-based activity. And I want to pick three aspects of it. One is, the first of them is going to be qualities. The qualities of banking. Experience of the last almost a year now on the Parliamentary Banking Standards Commission, which I'll just call the Commission, ruins many of one's illusions. One of the key points of disappointment is that bankers aren't nearly as bad as one hoped they would be. <laughs> they don't come in with horns and a tail, burning 50-pound notes to light large cigars, and involved in casino banking in arcane and complex structured projects, so much as coming in and having to admit or showing that what they'd done was the slightly unsophisticated error, I'm not talking about all of the banks, I say to the chairman of HSBC who's sitting <laughs> a few feet from me, um, that what they did essentially in many cases was to borrow short and lend long, one classic error, and secondly, they lent very, very large amounts of money to people who couldn't pay them back. Those two errors are quite sufficient to bankrupt any bank. They are not sophisticated errors, they are the reality. The largest bankruptcy of a bank in the UK, or rescue, it was rescued in the end, was HBOS, which lost more than 10% of its lo total loan portfolio, and more than 30% of its portfolio in Australia. That simply is going to bring anyone down. You can't help it. It will destroy you. Banking is highly complex in management terms. And thus, the first thing that needs to happen to restore confidence is to begin a move that will take a generation or more to complete towards professional standards in banking. We cannot go on with banking being essentially something that people drift into in the way that I drifted into being a group treasurer. Uh, I was one of the very few enumerate group treasurers in the top 100 companies in the UK. <laughs> in fact, I was the only one I ever met. <laughs> it created employment. There was an accountant specially assigned to check every number I ever spoke. <laughs> and he was needed. He was also my successor. The creation of a profession means the establishment of sets of standards and disciplines covering the different aspects of banking. There are 37 royal colleges in the medical world, and so the fact that there are loads of different banking disciplines doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means it will take a long time to establish in the way it does in the medical world and in the way that it changes. The point of a professional body is that it changes expectations and encourages not only high standards of professional knowledge, but also carries within it a sense of virtue of what it is to be good at what you're doing, both in practice and in character. I spent some years at one point as chairman or a director of a, an NHS trust, a general hospital trust. One of the fascinating things about medicine is not merely that it's to some degree self-regulating, though there is a very heavy degree of external oversight. It's the fact that the vast majority of doctors correct each other and 
talk to each other about how to improve what they do. There is a culture which helps improvement of standards. In addition, in the qualities that we need to require of a banking system that inspires confidence is the obvious and ancient virtue of transparency. The Governor of the Bank of England, in his evidence to the Commission, commented that the vast, a, a high proportion of bad loans in some of our major banks have not yet been recognised. We've all heard of the problem of zombie companies, and there is a significant suspicion that we have some essentially zombie banks. It took Japan 10 years to work out that if they were going to begin to get confidence back, they had to recapitalize the banking system. Balance sheets that are not transparent, that do not acknowledge the full level of potential loan losses, are not only bad in themselves, but create a sense of fear and overhang in the market. At the moment, British companies are holding more cash, both in absolute terms and as a proportion of GDP, than they have ever done in history. That fact simply points to a lack of confidence. And it has an ethical and social impact of a pro profound level in the sense that the budget last year, if you read the Red Book, essentially looked forward for recovery to exports and investment. If companies are hoarding cash at an extraordinary rate, exports and investment are going to be restrained, to put it mildly. Transparency means knowledge, and knowledge brings confidence. I would suggest as a practical measure that we need to start moving towards the establishment, as other countries have done, of a bad bank, good bank system in order to enable recapitalization and clarity of value. And I might add that as far as one can see, this is a European scale problem, particularly affecting some of the provincial banks in other countries in Europe. And the threat to confidence coming from Eurozone banking will need much more drastic action than we've seen to date. To step up a gear from the qualities of the banks, the second area I want to refer to is a revolution in aims of the banks. Banks exist to serve the society they are in, like all other companies. From an ethical point of view, a company is a group of people who come together in order to be profitable, but in being profitable, to promote the flourishing of the society in which they exist. They are not self-regarding things to maximise the returns only for their shareholders. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Do you think if I claimed it, I could get credit? <laughs> Sometimes works. <laughs> but also, it, it isn't, they are not self-regarding institutions, companies, which exist even for their stakeholders unless you stake, take stakeholder in an absurdly wide sense. They exist for the benefit of the whole of society. You'll find that point argued in uh, Centesimus Annus, in one of John Paul II's remarkable um, encyclicals. One of the uh, distance from where 
a bank is based to where it is lending and operating lends ignorance to credit scoring and is repaid with economic lethargy. One of the great dangers in the present mess is that we retain an extraordinarily, even now more concentrated banking industry, which remains incapable of localization. We need flexible regulation for new entrants such as Virgin Money, vigorous competition, clear specialization geographically as well as by product, and regulation that differentiates between a Northeast Bank funding SMEs and local trade and a large multinational full-service bank. There is a danger that we end up with the most cautious view of all of them. I am concerned that our new regulatory system might, in reaction to what happened in the last decade, become so risk-averse that new banks cannot grow and local needs cannot be met. In one of his bits of evidence to the Commission, Andy Haldane of the Bank of England showed that once banks get above about £100 billion of balance sheet, there are few, if any, further economies of scale. The other thing that seems fairly obvious from the evidence that we heard, and this isn't a Commission view, it's my own, is that basically as a bank you can be big and simple or small and complicated and do well. But if you get big and complicated, you become unmanageable. The aim of banking must be human flourishing. Profitability and good working are a means to that end. Distance makes focus on communities come down to giving money or time, social responsibility, rather than a broad sense of promoting the well-being of a region of which one is an integral part. That is one of the tragedies of the failure of Northern Rock. So both the issues of efficiency and of responsibility lead to the conclusion for me that at least part of the banking system should be local, not London-based, and have its root in its own community at a size where it has efficiencies of scale but is manageable. In simple terms, we need to recreate the local and the easiest way to do that, as well as bringing new entrants in, is to kill two birds with one stone by recapitalizing at least one of our major banks and breaking it up into regional banks. This would also have a major impact on remuneration, an area which is essential but which I do not have time to look at this evening. And the third area I want to mention, after the quality of the bank and the aims of banking, is the most difficult, and that is cultures and standards, or virtues. Basically, it's a long-standing premise of Christian belief that rules don't work. They don't make things work well, and if the system is shot, they don't stop things going wrong. This present mess is one where diagnosis of our disease is frequent and appears easy. Everyone says to us, the culture's not very good, you know. And we nod knowledgeably and write it down. But the cure is seldom proposed and even more rarely successful. It is also the area where hypocrisy, including my own, flourishes. It is easy to listen to evidence or read, story <coughs> read stories on a BBC blog and mutter disgraceful. 
in a pompous manner. But my own experience is that culture is easily degraded and far less easily taught to be good. I keep looking and listening as I've listened to hours and hours, weeks and weeks of evidence over the last 10 months and asked myself if I would have been any different. And what that says to me is that culture is not something that we can look at from outside and say we can easily beat that, or there is a simple answer. It requires a deep change in the overall environment in which good culture is being created. I also look at my own institution and ask myself what I am not seeing in the way that many of those who gave evidence said that they had not seen problems in their own institutions and we tut-tutted reprovingly. Good culture requires a ruthless honesty and a deep willingness to be made very uncomfortable indeed through listening to things one does not want to hear. The creation of virtue is community-based. We correct each other. But good culture and virtuous cultures only develop in communities of trust. One of the two most enjoyable times of my working life was when I was at Enterprise Oil as group treasurer. One of the reasons for that is there was an extremely good team that was rigorous in correcting each other. The result was that we were willing to challenge. And as a result of that, we grew a better culture. We managed to replicate that a few years ago when I was working in Liverpool at Liverpool Cathedral. And again, there was a team, a very diverse team, that was rigorous in correction, not bound by hierarchy. Fortunately, of course, I work for an organisation now that has no sense of hierarchy. <laughs> and in Christian history, where we go back to the monasteries as those great models at their best of virtuous communities, we find something similar. Benedict, in the early 6th century, at the time of the fall of the Western Empire, when every good thing in the world seemed to be vanishing, a far harder situation than today, knew that through people knowing the love of Christ and finding it in daily experience and sharing that love with one another, communities of love and security could be created. And the ones he created saved civilization and changed Europe. What does that mean in a world of business and competition? It means that companies should be communities of common interest, which serve the common good. For that to happen, there needs to be a store of value in them, a sense of what is right, that is independent of our individual achievement, compassionate in its acceptance of us, empowering in its interaction with us, and all-knowing in its assessment of us. My own experience over the years in religious and non-religious institutions is to affirm my deep sense of belief, despite ups and downs, my own particularly, that we find that only in the person of Jesus Christ. 
and in knowing and loving him. In the same way as a true Christian community is recognizable on sight, even to many non-believers, so trust and confidence can be sensed and recreated. They have been lost, and there needs to be both drastic action that may to some extent be symbolic to get them back. We will not do it either by relying on light touch regulation or heavy touch regulation, but by competence, by an aim of service to society and not mere rent-seeking, and a culture of virtue based in the realities of daily life and not a fantasy nirvana of perfection. <coughs> Thank you very much. to uh, contact all of the major UK PLCs and you could almost distinguish between them by their common culture. Yeah. And it's quite interesting that that reminded me so vividly that Enterprise Oil was our favourite because they were always all charming, whereas other companies, other companies you would ring and they would be downright rude and abusive. Yes, he didn't. We hadn't a prior arrangement. It just suddenly dawned on me that, of course, that was at the time you were there. So I have my own little experience of, um, of seeing... Good companies and bad companies, and Enterprise Oil was certainly a good company. Um, you did agree I could ask you the question, how difficult is it for a camel to enter the eye of a needle? Um, <laughs> you did agree. He I did agreed agree. you could ask yes. the question, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, no, uh, uh, the point of the parable is, is that they can't, that it takes uh, a miracle for them to be able to do so, and uh, fortunately, we believe in miracles. <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you. Right, well, um, <laughs> I reserve the right to, uh, to inflict any of our panel on you. Um, so, turning first to Robert, who um, is of Jewish background, but a secular individual. Um, so, Robert, would you like to respond to Justin's comments, and particularly... Do you think that um, Christianity, and Justin says that Christian communities can be recognised even by non-believers, do you think that's true? Is there a Sorry, role? That, that... A Christian community can be recognised even by non-believers, so you can see the goodness in a group of people who are really working well together. Do you think that's true? Well, I mean, as a scrupulously non-observant Jew, um, <laughs> I found myself in a surprising degree of agreement with the Archbishop, and I, I don't sort of, in a sense, need a sort of great regulator in the sky, as it were, to inform my moral view. I mean, one of the things that actually I do find, I have found for many years, profoundly depressing, was the sort of prevailing view, which is certainly true in the 80s and 90s, that companies in general were not moral entities, uh, that in some way the, the social function... Uh, the social reality of companies was rather forgotten, and then we, we lived to a period of sort of anything goes. I mean, I've always taken the view that because companies are social organisms, one should good, judge them as good and bad 
in just the same way as one judge in, judges individuals as good and bad. And actually another thing that I thought was fairly pernicious a few years ago was this sort of movement to persuade companies to be good because it would boost their profits. Yeah, yeah. It seems Absolutely. to me once you're actually judging the worth of doing good in those sorts of terms, you're no longer being good. There was a particular well-known advisor to David Cameron who made a rather lot of money out of this movement, and I'm rather glad to see that this particular movement has rather gone by the wayside. As it happens, I take the view that banks have an even greater obligation than most sorts of institutions to be good because actually in their case, uh, and as we saw from the great crash of 2007-2008, they are, all of them, of any size, underpinned by a guarantee from taxpayers. And in that sense, we have a sort of indirect ownership of all of them. And, in that, and I think, therefore, banks have a particular and peculiar obligation to reflect the better values of that we tend to adhere to. It seems to me it is actually, I don't like it when companies are bad, but then it may be a rational choice for a company to behave unscrupulously in the pursuit of short-term profits. I wish they didn't behave like that, but just as there are bad people, there will be bad companies. But I don't think we should tolerate bad banks because, as I say, in that very profound way, they are not normal commercial businesses. We do uh, underpin them. Um, I also found myself uh, actually rather in sympathy with many of the prescriptions uh, that Archbishop Welby was, was talking about. One of the things that has surprised me post the great crisis of 2007-2008, is how little resonance there's been to the notion not that one should separate investment banking from retail banking, which is, of course, where all the argument has been, but simply reduce the size of banks. I mean, we still have three enormous institutions in this country which, if they were to need bailing out again, they would bankrupt the state. Mm. And that seems to me to be a highly dangerous and precarious situation for us to find ourselves mm. in. Uh, now, uh, there are all sorts of clever ways that are being uh, uh, gradually implemented to make these, what Warren Buffett would call, I suppose, instruments of mass destruction <laughs> or lethal destruction rather less lethal. Uh, the, 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 the phrase at the moment is resolution procedures whereby you can extract the socially valuable bit of a bank in a crisis at minimal cost to the taxpayer and you hope put the rest of the bank on to those who can afford uh, the losses, the shareholders and creditors uh, with less cost to taxpayers. Uh, These sorts of resolution procedures may end up being semi-successful, but I have my doubts. Uh, I I once had a conversation with the um, chairman of a relatively well-known bank in which I asked him whether uh, how long it would take him to get to know all the operations of his institution, and he he conceded to me it would take him several lifetimes. Now, in those... In, in those circumstances, I find it quite difficult uh, to believe that you can simply through uh, uh, procedures in an emergency to break the thing up, do it in a way that really protects 
all of us. And actually, the general position that the Archbishop takes, that banks should be smaller, simpler, and more transparent, seems to me to be one that, as I say, I'm slightly surprised, hasn't had more traction, to use that mm. cliche, in terms of political and media debate. And I suspect it hasn't had traction because, actually, we, you know, we are slightly fatalist about all of this. We're told that this is just the world as it is and there's not a lot that we can do about it, globalisations, financial complexity, these are things that, you know, we are foolish to even contemplate meddling with. Well, we've come some distance. We're being more radical today than we were a few years ago, and I suspect there's rather further to travel in this particular journey. Uh, I think also this idea of, of regional banks is, is, is a pretty compelling one. I think the only thing I would just say, and, and, and having been... I think, in, 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 in a sense, been uh, hugely sort of positive about those things. I would just say that there are some, there are some practical difficulties. Um, one is that actually, were you to recapitalise and break up one of our bigger banks, you know, Lloyd's or RBS, for some reason or other, spring to mind, um, the cost to the taxpayer could be, in the short term, really very significant indeed. If you're talking about, I don't know, five, six, seven head offices being replicated. Uh, if you're talking about the IT challenges, these are pretty... Excuse me, Robert, sorry. division in the Lords. There's a division in the Lords. Yeah. Sorry, um, excuse me, Robert, there's a division in the Lords. <laughs> How did you know that? Um, because... We don't have a carrier system, so apparently <laughs> Brian and I are both... We're going to go and vote against each other. Sorry, Mark. So just to very briefly, um, uh, to, 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 to um, sort of broadly, broadly finish off, I mean, one shouldn't underestimate the enormous complexity of breaking a bank up. Uh, Royal Bank of Scotland is in the process of trying to hive off quite a small part uh, Williams and Glynn's and, 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 and uh, Lloyd's has been trying to do the same with the LTSB and the, I mean, the IT complexities have been nightmarish uh, the, 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 the challenge of persuading their customers to stay with a new bank have been huge the regulatory challenges have been enormous and you know, as I say, the costs of creating a whole new overhead structure would be great so I think the, the thing, if, if one is going to go down that kind of path you have to go down it with your eyes open that the longer-term economic and social benefits are such that you are prepared uh, to, in a sense, well, take a pretty big loss on the transaction, which I think is almost certainly uh, what would happen. Um, that, nonetheless, you know, I think there is a sort of reasonable... I can absolutely see why one might think that that would be a price worth paying. Robert, can yeah. you um, do you support the idea of giving RBS to the taxpayer, for example, if you've been a fan of the idea of giving shares away? I mean, there is something slightly circular, isn't there, about the idea that something we all own has got to be given to us. Um, the, um, I, what do I think? I think that uh, in the current state of the public finances it is quite difficult for the Treasury simply to say, you know, here's a, you know, a few shares for each of you and you can keep all the proceeds. Now, I think this wheeze that... I can't remember the name of the firm. Is it called Portland or 
something like Portmore or Portmore or something, yeah. where, where they basically said you get a share which would entitle you to the profits after... So if you sold the shares, essentially the proceeds would go back to the Treasury to cover the Treasury's in-cost, and any, any profit on top of that would stay with you, the citizen. I mean, that seems to me to be quite a decent kind of idea. I'm a bit of a believer in uh, maximising share-owning in this country. It doesn't seem to me to be a bad, a bad way of uh, doing it. My only concern, and it's not a trivial concern, is if I look back to the 1980s, when we had these mass privatisations, the problem with the current state of what you might call shareholder democracy is that when you have shares owned by millions and millions of people, managers tend to feel that they have a licence to do what they like. I mean, we may have wholly inadequate governance exercised by our investment institutions, but at least they do have enough shares to have for their voices to be heard. If I think back to Abbey National, the early days of many of the privatised utilities, they took the view that having millions of shareholders meant they were accountable to nobody but themselves. And we had many years until the institutions actually acquired quite a big foothold in these companies of really terrible governance. Mm. So some yeah. mixture... Of sort of maxim, you know, of, 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 of shares owned by individuals and institutions would probably seem, from a governance mm. point of view, to be, uh, you know, a better way. Mm. Thank you, thank you. I think Jane Ann is very keen to reply on some of those points. So Jane Ann, Robert says that there aren't ethical companies and probably shouldn't be. Um, so, but you've made a big thing of your lounges. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to deny that? Yes, yeah, so that's yes. the opposite. Yeah, you said exactly you the said opposite. That there, you said that there aren't ethical companies. No, I, think, that, I, I that said, I said we should judge... Banks should be ethical. No, no, I said we should judge all companies in that way, but there was a particular... should judge all companies by whether or not they're ethical or not, but as it happens, I think there's a particular obligation on banks. Mm, yes, yes. So would, would you agree with that, Jane Ann? Do you, do you think your, your policy of having introducing lounges in branches, is that just good business or is it an attempt to be an ethical bank? Well, as I was listening to all of this, I was thinking, um, you know, given the background being part of a, a Bible Society um, evening here today, uh, I come from a Christian family with a Hindu husband, which is in, in, interesting in many ways. And uh, over the years, we've been married for a very long time, and I had my daughter, my only daughter, very late in life. And um, I remember very clearly thinking that I'd have my daughter come back to work and everything would be just as it was previously. And uh, I had to come back to work. We couldn't afford to manage otherwise. And, of course, she was born, and I did not want to come back to work. I had six weeks off. And I was obviously very emotional at that time, clearly. And uh, we had a big get-together in the company. I was uh, in Virgin at the time. Uh, and no, I wasn't. I was at RBS at the time, come to think of it, but running part of the Virgin business there. And uh, I remember getting together a group of people and saying, do you know what, I've had to come back to work, and the only reason I'm going to leave my daughter is if what we do together has some meaning, because otherwise it's just not worth it. And as I said it, I thought, is everybody going to think I'm completely stupid now? And the reaction I had was truly astonishing. Um, and I realised, actually, that almost everybody in the room wanted to come to work for a bit more meaning than they thought they might have had. And it, and it gave us, together as a team, the confidence to talk about what meaning meant, if you see what I mean, for us. And it was part of what then led us to, as a group of people, I then moved on from RBS, who had bought part of my Virgin business, back to the sort of heartland of Virgin. 
Um, 87 people came with me and we talked about what we should build as Virgin Money. And at that time, um, it was inspired a bit by that sort of thinking, but um, more at the, in the early days as a marketing campaign, we said, well, our intention here is to make everybody better off. It's not just about, you know, how do we build a business or make money for the Virgin Group. We want to do something that has some meaning and we want to make everyone better off. What does that mean? Well, actually, it means, of course, we want to give the customer a good deal and good service. I mean, it's not, you can all guess what it is. You know, we want to give the customer a good deal and good service. Um, we want to give our corporate partners a win-win relationship with us. Um, we want our staff, our colleagues, call this the five C's now, to have a, a career that you know, it means that they can fulfil their own ambitions, whether that's paying the mortgage or, or doing something different. Um, we want to do something good in the community. I completely agree that businesses should be centred in the community. And we have to do something good with the company, i.e. we earn the right to do all of that, and we talk about it in those terms, by making a sensible profit. And we started to build that thought, everyone's better off, which we now call Ebo. And what we found is that it's no longer a marketing thought. It's absolutely our corporate ambition. And it's the test, actually, and it sort of happened accidentally, almost exactly in the way that I've talked about. It's the test for us of whether or not people are really going to be on this virgin money journey or not. You know, can they buy into Ebo, as we call it? And do we all buy into Ebo? And, and the lovely thing about it is that it enables me and my team as um, leaders in the business to um, confidently empower wider groups of people because actually what we say to them is if we're going to make a decision or a recommendation, tell us why it's eBay. Mm. And it just helps to sort of um, give decisions and recommendations, a, 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 I think, a, an extra dimension. Um, so it's been very, very powerful for us. And so, Andrew, your point about um, the lounges or um, other things, uh, where, where's the motivation for them? Uh, the actual, again, in a small entrepreneurial company, the, the thinking on lounges came from the fact that um, we were growing um, and needed a new building in Edinburgh. And we chose a lovely building in Edinburgh that was going to be perfect for 150 people. Um, and it was quite contemporary in the back, but being Edinburgh, it had a sort of uh, Georgian frontage which was protected. It had three wood-panelled rooms. And we thought, and, and you, if you took the rest of the building, you had to take this. We thought, what on earth are we going to do with it? And what would the Ebo solution be? Well, maybe we could make it a bit of a members club. How would that work? And um, we said, well, why don't we make it a members club, offer it to customers, see whether or not customers like it, see whether or not that has a sort of ongoing uh, benefit for the business. And the thing that surprised me was I went to my board and said, I'd like to open a lounge. And they said, how's that going to make any money? I said, I have absolutely no idea. But I don't think any other bank could could do the same thing. And they said, what are you going to do there? And I said, well, we're going to let people come in and uh, read the paper, have a cup of coffee, uh, leave their shopping in lockers, go to the loo, change the baby if they want to, because there's never anywhere in town you can do that. And um, then we'll see whether or not we can build deeper, more personal customer relationships. And I have to say, my board were totally supportive and said that, yeah, okay, let's go ahead and do that. And that there was genuinely, let's, you know, it's an innovation that's different in the world of banking. Um, in our Edinburgh lounge now, uh, we get 350 people in a day, and you may argue, of course they'll come in for free coffee, won't they? Um, 
But as a consequence, the business in our branch that's about 25 minute, 20 minutes walk away probably has gone up by more than 300%. Um, and our, well, you know, one of, one, just a, one small anecdote really, a, a customer came in recently and as you'll all know deposit pricing is coming down at the moment and like other banks we've had to move our pricing down and uh, one of the lounge customers came in and said publicly in front of everyone, you know, I move around quite a lot when rates move normally you've moved your rates down, normally I'd be looking for a better rate frankly I'm going to stay with you because I love this particular service that you've given to me now it's early days, but for us, that's about building EBO relationships. Mm, and so, Archbishop, for me, I would, I, like Robert, found myself um, agreeing with almost everything that you said, but two things that were missing for me were, you said, is there anyone who can fix this mess? Perhaps not. I think that the thing <coughs> that is missing in the world of banking, for me, maybe this is the start of it, is real collaboration. And um, I, I have certainly found myself, and I'm definitely not a big exponent of, you know, um, women in banking, as it were, as a separate, as almost a separate thing. But I do think that banking, for whatever reason, has been very alpha male dominated, and has been a win lose type environment. Not with everyone, but I, as a woman, sense it. And, um, you know, there are a number of problems in uh, banking today. Robert, you talk about the RBS process, where they're selling the old Williams and Lynn's branches. Hugely complex, hugely complex. My plea to people involved, frankly, is why don't we all sit around the table together and work out how we can solve it, rather than making it a black-and-white M&A-type process of the olden days, which clearly isn't going to solve that sort of problem. And I think there's, there's not enough collaboration between... Um, leaders in banking to help banking to become a more um, forgive me EBO environment mm -hmm. so the one thing that um, I might add to if I may to the many things that you said Archbishop is I, I think that leadership is critical as we move forward into the world of culture and values which I absolutely agree with and I think the, these sort of talking in this sort of way will give people perhaps confidence to be a different type of, um, of leader going forward. So for us, uh, Andrea, we've been thrilled, and I hope I don't sound too naive in it, but we definitely have started from trying to build a business based on values. Um, when we acquired Northern Rock, um, I was quite worried, actually, that you know, we were a tiny business, 500 people, more than 2,000 people joined us from Northern Rock. I was quite worried that they might feel taken over. Um, much like this thought of people wanting meaning at work, of course, what we found was we were welcomed with open arms because actually people in Newcastle had had a terrible four years and they absolutely <coughs> wanted to be part of a journey of growth and success. And um, as a consequence, the, turning Northern Rock into Virgin Money has been a much more straightforward process than I'd expected. And as a consequence, we've, uh, we're delighted to say that we've been able to turn what was a loss-making business with Northern Rock by last September, was at, each month since, has made a profit. Um, and that's been really thought-provoking for all of us because what I can promise you, if I don't sound too naive, is it started from trying to do the right thing and at the moment it's meant that things have been going right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic. That's a great good, good luck and good hope story. 
Thank you very much, Jane Ann. And um, Paul, that, that's a, perhaps a good point to, to bring you in because you've written extensively about um, some of the um, relational aspects of in life, but particularly in finance and the need for community and people to consider each other as human beings, not just as transactions. And perhaps you could expand on that. And, and particularly um, some of the uh, things you've written about include the um, need to look more at equity and less at debt and the consequences of overextended debt. Yeah. Hmm. So my reaction to what we've heard is that a lot of it is um, fine, uh, and I would agree with um, community banking, uh, with breaking up large institutions, uh, giving them an ethical purpose, particularly in banking. So none of what I'm going to say is going to go against that um, uh, theme. Um, but it's not going to get us out of the mess because we're not recognising what put us in the mess in the first place, uh, which is that this society is grossly indebted, has promised itself too much, both on the government's balance sheet and through private debt, and that we, have no, we haven't changed our culture yet uh, towards effectively putting more equity into the system, uh, be that in housing, be that in corporates, be that in banks. And so um, we have the instinctive policy reaction is not to allow the credit structure to shrink uh, when it could be through debt write-offs, foreclosures, whatever. It's always to keep interest rates low, keep lending up, uh, keep the, the superstructure going, hoping that something is going to turn around. Uh, the problem is um, that this is a correlated crisis across countries, so that we're not going to be able to devalue or depreciate ourselves out of it easily. And that we have an overextended uh, system, both not just on the banks, but on households and corporates, but not recognising that we've got to structurally address that. Yes, I agree with the need for ethical banking and standards and so on, but the problem is that when you've got a limited liability institution levered 35 to 40 times, the temptation to take risk uh, is vastly rewarded if it comes off, whereas the downside is virtually nothing. And so, yes, start bringing in professional standards for banking and so on. But until you make the system uh, much more capital intensive and maybe even starting to address limited li liability for banking, which uh, we had until uh, the early 20th century, mm -hmm. you're not going to uh, um, fundamentally address the motives for uh, sound risk-taking and monitoring by shareholders. Now, the problem is that re-equifying the banking system is enormously costly. We'll put the cost of credit up dramatically, and we don't want to do it because that means house prices come down a lot, share values come down a lot. And so it's politically never the right time to start paying off debt and getting debt levels down. So the first things to do to start thinking about where should the credit structure be held. 
and that's generally not on bank balance sheets uh, because banks uh, are okay at originating credit. They have access to information that others don't. They can monitor more easily because of the payment system. Uh, but they are highly levered and inherently illiquid capital structures. And therefore they are volatile balance sheets waiting for a shock to come along to take them out. Deutsche Bank was 70 times levered in 2007. Um, so in our, with our current climate, where do you put that risky credit? It's actually on uh, balance sheets that have a longer liability structure, which is insurers and pension funds. And so we are very gradually starting to see uh, bank credit being transferred to other balance sheets, but it's not going on to any great degree, and regulators are just not putting those pieces together. So we're actually going to start tightening uh, capital standards for insurers for corporate debt, uh, commercial real estate, lending, and so on, just at the time that we need somewhere for the banks to put their, uh, to sell their assets to. But more fundamentally, uh, we then need to start thinking about how to move away from this credit and debt dependence of the society. And the two main things to think about would be removal, if not reversal, of the corporate tax incentives for debt. Uh, so this applies to banks as well. This is, what, in one sense, why there's uh, a sort of de inherent desire for banks to lever themselves up. They get the tax break that other corporates do as well. And just doing that would remove a number of the uh, egregious problems that we have with corporate finance. Uh, but also I'd say that we need to start thinking much more radically about a non-debt housing, house finance system, which the government is sort of experiment, experimenting with on the side in lease to buy, uh, but <coughs> needs a much bigger push and would be very expensive for banks to hold those assets on balance sheet. So our housing market finance system uh, is extraordinarily pro-cyclical, uh, but it also gives uh, inherently stupid incentives. So we have politicians, journalists, bankers wanting housing to get expensive because the population have a levered position in housing. And yet, this is a staple of existence. Um, we should be actually wanting house prices to stay stable, if not come down. Uh, for other people to invest in something productive. And so if you start trying to convert the debt stock <coughs> into a lease-to-buy mechanism, uh, it would become much more stable, mm -hmm. and it would give um, pension funds and maybe even retail savers an asset that they could uh, buy if this was securitized, that gives them a, a, a stake in housing without having to buy a house. The meta point of all this is that, just going back to the Bible, the Bible talks about debt as financial slavery, financial servitude. And Jesus talks about interest as uh, profiting from effectively the slavery of others. It's uh, reaping what you haven't sown. So going back to the original relational point, 
This is why uh, the church was antipathetic to debt capital for most of its history, uh, that it was seen as essentially to making a return from the financial servitude, the bondage, you've given your bond in a debt of another. And so we've used intermediaries to try and distance ourselves from that nasty truth because it's efficient and uh, cheap to do so and not recognising that a debt finance system survives because it keeps getting bailed out. It imposes costs on third parties through inflation, through uh, bankruptcy, through the tax breaks and so on and can't stand on its own two feet. Uh, so the sort of what I've been trying to develop for the last 20 years is that this idea of the, Christian, the fundamental Christian critique of, the, of that debt system and to think about alternatives. Mm, mm, that's really interesting. And um, so would you then advocate, I mean, h- how would you advocate moving from a position that we're in now? Would you advocate doing that with a short, sharp shock or would you say <coughs> that you need to transition very carefully and slowly to a... Um, a different housing purchase system, a different structure for banking. And do you think that um, some of the points that Jane Ann and and Justin made about um, needing to have smaller, less complicated organisations, do you think that helps in that regard? Certainly. Simplification of balance sheets uh, will help, but you've got to realise that that is costly, partly for the reasons Robert said about infrastructure costs and so on. Uh, but also because uh, we've had 25 years where we've all been naive about the true costs of credit, that banks got big, got levered on the back of implicit insurance from government. For political and fiscal reasons, the government isn't going to be there next time. And as you're seeing in the euro area, bank resolution is being forced on countries uh, when we thought that would never be allowed to happen. And so, yes, we've got to do it for survival. As Robert said, we could face one of these institutions going down and um, we need to prepare for that. Um, But that subsidy that has built up over 25 years in the credit structure is gradually being unwound. And if we do it very fast, it means several hundreds of basis points in credit Mm, cost. mm. Um, So you can do it fast and... The fast things you can do um, are around, uh, rather than foreclosing on mortgages or whatever, allowing intermediaries to own shares in housing directly rather than foreclosing and then renting that to the owners. And maybe Ireland may have to move to something strategic like that because of the enormous problems of delinquency in its mortgage stock. Um, But I would say that if you've got time, you have to start changing the incentives changing the tax breaks, uh, trying to move to a system that is much more capital-intensive and safer for, to, to be able to survive collapse. But that will mean smaller institutions and, ironically, regional <coughs> simple institutions will be charged more capital by the regulators because they're not diversified. Mm, yeah. 
So small banks will be charged more mm. than diversified large mm. ones. Mm. Well, thank you. That's, that's really interesting. And that sort of takes us on to the last piece of the jigsaw, which is um, where you come in, Paul, which is to look at... Thank you for finding your way back from the House of Lords. Um, <laughs> to face the question about what more could regulation do? Because, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk that we're sort of shutting the door after the horse has bolted and we're trying to, you know, increase capital ratios at a time when we should be loosening them and so on um, to try and get through this difficult period. And and are we doing enough about competition, about removing regulatory barriers to entry, and so on? Um, thank you, Chair. Um, apologies for, for having to go, but it was worthwhile. We, we uh, beat the government by 69 votes. Um, uh, so we'll ping-pong back now to the House of, uh, House of, uh, House of Commons. I, I think regulation was certainly well below most people's expectations in terms of its performance here and elsewhere. This was not a solely UK phenomenon. Regulation <coughs> fell short of expectation in a number of other economies as well. Regulation needs to be sharper, better informed. It needs to have stronger sanctions than it currently has. But clearly the um, consequences of failure are not as significant as the benefits of success from the perspective of people working in the financial services sector. Regulation is not an ethics-free area. Regulation has within it implicit values. The regulation that we saw during the tripartite era, which I believe continues, um, believes that, that markets produce good outcomes. And so it believes that we should do everything possible to facilitate liquid, well-informed markets. I personally think our markets in many respects are too liquid uh, and too much of a trading culture. And I think that particularly applies uh, to uh, issues of equity ownership, where I think the trading mentality has meant that nobody really feels that they own the banks. Um, it's very interesting when you look at the work which um, the Banking Commission has done, the, the Vickers Commission, um, Anthony Saltz uh, on Barclays and other reports. Nobody has asked, well, what are the owners of these mm. banks doing, allowing the banks to get into the difficulties they got into? And this is the consequence of modern portfolio theory, um, uh, efficient market hypothesis, etc., that leads us to a situation of very diversified and distributed ownership uh, in which owners uh, only respond um, when it's too late. Um, regulatory structure believed in markets. It believed that disclosure was enough. It facilitated relationships which morphed from client-based to counterparty-based. Um, um, these are alien to uh, the sentiments expressed by the right Reverend Prelate and talked about community-based virtue and communities of trust and services to the common good. Those assumptions were not implicit within our regulatory architecture and they're still not. We have structures in which, as I said, outcomes are asymmetric. Um, the benefits of success are counted in tens of millions of pounds of bonuses. The consequences of failure are relatively modest. Uh, indeed, often actually lead to payment of retention bonuses or something similar to fear um, that people who didn't produce profits will go off uh, and, and not at some point deliver 
what was expected um, of them. Uh, I think another very significant factor, and I speak here as somebody who only served in government for a short but, but fairly important period of time, is the political influence of the banking sector is absolutely huge. The lobbying of the banking sector exceeds anything that the customers of the banks would ever be able to do in terms of accessing Absolutely. government. I was, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a pretty um, hard-nosed individual, but I, was, I found that the lobbying by the banks during the banking crisis, um, the uh, collusion in terms of lobbying the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, the Permanent Secretary, and everybody, are quite extraordinary. And we continue to see this. So, um, I, we, we, I, just as I came back in, you were talking about um, uh, cost, uh, uh, that, that, that it's, it's, it's immoral, I know you can say that, but to, to have tax incentives for debt but not for equity, were actually slipped into the last budget, mm-hmm. receiving yeah. not a single piece of newspaper comment at all. I noticed it. The Chancellor <laughs> allowed uh, the coupons on Tier, tier 1 debt yeah, to yes. become tax deductible. This is effectively a, sub, uh, a further subsidy to the banking industry, well, because the which of, 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 six, of £600 million yeah. um, pounds, uh, a year. Treasury alone yeah, uh, to recapitalise the banks at well, the moment. They, 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 they want to nationalise RBS, that's I, why they did it. No, Robin, if, uh, yeah. um, uh, let me finish, please. Uh, <laughs> Um, the, the shareholders show no appetite for recapitalising the banks either um, because the banks are currently selling uh, a significant discount to book value. And in that situation, the dilution and damage of further equity interest is something the shareholders uh, are not uh, terribly attracted by either. I think banks are different. I think they do need to be subject to much more regulation. I find it extraordinary that the Treasury has rejected the advice of the Banking Commission to uh, limit the, the leverage ratio uh, to 25 to 1 uh, rather than 33 uh, to 1. Um, I think the banks should be paying for the implicit guarantee they receive. I do not think that the ring fencing of banks can possibly work. I'm afraid if we imagine that Bank A, one of the big three or four UK banks, under the new structure, ring fences into uh, a plain vanilla bank and a um, investment bank, both under a common holding company structure, that it would be possible to envisage a situation in which the uh, investment bank could fail uh, and uh, the the retail bank uh, not suffer any uh, difficulty at all. So I think that's a a fundamentally flawed approach. We do have very high banking concentration. The Herfindahl Index of Industry Concentration, which competition authorities normally use uh, to measure uh, whether there is likely customer harm as a result of industry concentration um, is uh, broken through um, dramatically uh, by the UK banking industry. Um, but it's, I think it's one of those cases where it's quite difficult to see how we get to where we should be, uh, Andrea, uh, from where we are at the moment. Uh, I, I think the argument uh, for a good bank, bad bank split um, of uh, some of our banks uh, is a very good one, but it would be hugely disruptive economically at uh, this time. Likewise, I think if um, Andy Haldane is correct that the scale benefits don't go beyond a certain size, I see no reason uh, why the major banks uh, should not at some point be compelled to split uh, and that that should not be in the best interest of the shareholders. But when I put this to John Vickers, he said he had no confidence that if you split NatWest from RBS, 
HBOS from Lloyds that behaviours will change at all. And there I think you have the problem with the challenger banks because they're very much at the margin. They, it's it, almost impossible to believe how, you know, I've got tremendous respect for, for Jane Ann, but it's very, very difficult for the challenger banks uh, to alter the, 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 the topography um, of the banking industry. So in a perfect world, I would like to see um, the banks split. But if I was in the Treasury, would I do it now? No, I wouldn't. With, a, <laughs> with an economy which is teetering on at best continued flatlining and possibly going back into some statistical recession again, it would be um, a folly to, uh, to, to, to do that um, at the moment. My final comment is this checks and balance thing. Um, the, and and I, I don't think complexity is necessarily the issue because the, the, the biggest failure, HBOS, um, the failures of Northern Roth and Bradford and Bingley uh, were not about complexity. They were actually reasonably um, simple banks. Some of our most complex banks, in fact, um, didn't uh, require a great deal of state support, although every bank benefited from some form of uh, state support during the crisis and continues to pay uh, benefit, um, but I, I think that um, I think we have to ask what the boards of directors were doing. I met I met the uh, chairs of the audit committees of our major banks in uh, January 2009, and I was uh, individually. Well, I asked that they'd all come into the treasury and see me on their own without anybody else. And they were most reluctant to do that. Um, and in the end, we conceded they could bring a, a note taker. And it was quite extraordinary, with the exception of one, how little they understood about the risks that had been taken by their institutions. There was one who shone in this group. But, and then I, I again come back to the issue of surely the owners should be the people who are affording some check and balance and clearly in our modern structure of diversified and distributed ownership that is not possible so we do need strong regulation um, but regulation will not in itself make up for cultural or ethical failure regulation at best can ameliorate some of the worst consequences it can't head off the sort of things which we saw happen uh, in the first decade of this millennium well, thank you. So a huge amount to be done, and, uh, and we're in a pretty bad state right now. Um, I do want to open the questioning to the floor to give you all the chance to fire questions, perhaps um, a couple at a time and to individuals rather than to the whole panel. Um, and we've got about um, 15, 20 minutes left of this session. So, um, yes, would you like to ask the first question? If you could possibly give your name and where you're from... And we've got, we did have some people going round with microphones. Are we, do we have some, yeah, have we got microphones? Jack. Um, They're there. Okay, shout, excellent, thank you. Thank you. David Nussbaum, Chief Executive of WWF, the environmental charity, Chair of Transparency International, the anti-corruption NGO, but asking a question in my capacity also to the non-executive director of a small financial cooperative based in the Northeast. Um, we've heard a bit, I think, from Paul about owners, but nobody's referred to the fact that the ownership structure of the, the financial services retail uh, uh, business in this country changed significantly. And isn't there an argument that what we're suffering from is a lack of competition in ownership models? 
uh, we used to have very large um, uh, mutual organizations, building societies, providing retail financial services. And uh, through changing the, uh, the arrangements for those, they were all privatized. And if we look at what happened to, to just about all of those, that, that there's, there's a series of disaster stories. Um, don't we need more alternative ownership models rather than assuming we have to stick with the joint stock company, uh, uh, company which is one very good, uh, arguably sometimes, maybe often, uh, ownership model, but not the only one? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, a really good point. Um, yes, sir. Uh, yeah. I mean, really, just the Robert Swanwell from Martin Spencer, just to, to add on to that, the, it seems to have been lost in the last 35 years. All of the investment banking businesses have gone from partnerships to limited liability companies. Yeah. And without naming any particular names, I think if you looked at the shareholders' funds of one of the biggest US investment banks 35 years ago, it would be the order of magnitude $100 million mm. as a partnership. And today it's not a partnership, it is $70 billion. Um, so that's quite a radical transformation. Mm. And but nothing so radical has been suggested <coughs> to shift back the other way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it's a, it's a very good point. We'll take one more. Um, Tony Paul, please. Uh, Tony Paul here, Mr. In the 1700s, uh, quite a large number of banks were founded by Quakers because they couldn't get into, um, you know, Seagrove, Gillies, Barclays, they couldn't get into profession. And I just wondered how did the boards of directors those banks behave collectively differently. They're very informed by their Christian faith. How do they behave differently to boards of directors of the banks today? Mm. Mm. So, ownership structures of banks. Um, Robert? I mean, it's certainly incredibly striking that every single demutualized building society failed. And uh, Bradford and Bingley, uh, Northern Rock, HBOS. Every single one of them failed. Um, and so there is something, about, certainly about the transition from the mutual structure uh, to uh, the PLC structure that simply didn't work in those cases. And I think a lot, in, 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 in the case of those three, a lot of it was actually this point I was making earlier which is curiously um, that they had no proper relationship with responsible owners in the stock market. Now, you would have assumed uh, that a mutual structure where you have millions of savers, none of whom probably think of themselves as owners, you would have thought that actually boards in those circumstances would behave more irresponsibly. Mm. But in practice, nationwide, which remained a mutual, a mutual uh, had performed incomparably better than the ones that converted. Um, so, uh, uh, so it is. It, it, there is something that one has to think about there uh, in, in, in respect of whether there is some way of, as you say, diversifying the landscape. I mean, one of the um, one of the sort of fascinating findings um, post crash was the extent to which all these banks. This is again, you mentioned him before, this bit of work that this chap Andy Hallday has done. Uh, all these banks tried to ape each other. Mm. Um, and they all basically made the same broad mistakes at the same time, which made the entire 
system that much more vulnerable. Uh, and there is some very interesting work about the similarities between, you know, the, the ecosystems that survive through diversity and financial systems. Uh, and we didn't have a very, you know, we, we had this myth that individual institutions were diverse, but actually, collectively, they were unbelievably undiverse. And so when one got into trouble, they all got into trouble because they all, they'd all made the same mistakes of being too dependent on securitised markets that failed and having lent and invested in a particularly foolish way. So I, I you know, I, 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 I mean, I, I think probably on Tony's point, I mean, I think you know, it is certainly the case that there were a number of institutions who. Um, smaller WEN partnerships um, A I think probably were run by people who, who, who did not make the distinction between their prep, you know, professional and in a sense moral private life quite as sharply and I think that may have helped in some ways but also it was actually the point that Robert was making which was absolutely crucial these people knew if their banks went bust they went bust um, and you know, the, 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 the reality is as we all know that the people who made these colossal mistakes are still living in enormous houses with enormous pensions. Um, and therefore, the, the, the penalty for getting it wrong simply wasn't there. The, the one final thing, which I think actually, I, one point I, I, I very much agree with um, Justin Welby about is this, that all, one should not put too much faith in regulation. Um, actually, I think broadly, I think two reasons. One is because if you believe that behaving ethically is important, then it's also the case that people should feel they are responsible for their actions. And the more that people are simply ticking boxes and doing what regulators tell them, the less they, the less room they have for doing the right or the wrong thing. I would much rather see a world in which institutions were simpler, more transparent, more amenable to outside control by owners for example, and one didn't have to rely on micromanagement by regulators. Now, unfortunately, we have banks that are unbelievably opaque, unbelievably complicated, so right now, we do have to have these bloody regulators telling banks, you know, essentially when to go to the loo or whatever it is, but it is, that is not an ideal situation to be in. Uh, and over time, one would like to see simpler institutions where there is, in fact, less regulation. And I'll give you one example of how regulation that was done for the best of possible purposes was a disaster to the banking sector. We have to have in the room the chairman of, of, of HSBC who, who, as a bank, they broke all the governance rules by appointing as chairman, and they continue to appoint a chairman, somebody who works for the bank. Right? There, there were these rules that were put in place in the 1980s called the Cadbury Rules, where basically banks are, no public company is supposed to appoint a chairman from inside the company. What happened? In the banks, they were all Cadbury compliant and they promoted to the, po- to the positions of chairman people who had never worked in banking and were a total disaster. So, you know, you could have regulation that you somehow think is in the general good, but the only bank that wasn't bailed out was the one that breached this particular rule, it was HSBC. <laughs> okay. Jane Ann, would you like to make a comment on that in terms of um, ownership of, of banks? And... I mean, I, I find it interesting that although um, morally, if you like, I would love to be supportive of mutuals, I find it difficult to do so for many of the reasons that uh, Robert has said. At the end of the day, I think that the success of banks is about capital, however that capital comes in. And as a challenger bank, if you like, Paul, you talked a little bit about how hard it is to compete. The thing that we need, actually, isn't to be treated better than the rest, but we do need a level playing field. 
And so I think regardless of ownership structure, it's critically important that the capital requirements are clear, that we have the right sort and the right amount of capital for all of our financial institutions to be safe, systemically and on behalf of customers. So I think, for me, I'd be focusing on capital. I think that um, one of the things I've been um, privileged to see, I think, over the last five or six years is having looked at Northern Rock absolutely during the crisis. Robert, you'll remember that time. Um, uh, and, not, and then the bank being nationalised, we were able to look from afar at what then happened with quite a lot of knowledge of the issues that were in Northern Rock from the very beginning. And I find myself, as a consequence, actually, much more sympathetic with the regulators than I hear many of my colleagues being. And one of the things that I like from, to see from the regulators is the fact that, broadly, I think the rules have been constructed based on the learnings, very much on the learnings of the last six years, five or six years. And therefore, broadly, I support them. And the thing, again, I'm afraid I come back to my collaboration point. I was asked at a recent Treasury Select Committee um, appearance uh, what my relationship with the regulator was like, and I said it was uh, positive. And I think I was asked, would you say that if the regulators uh, weren't listening in on this particular conversation? And I absolutely would. And the reason for that is that, um, actually, the way in which we try and do our business is to be completely transparent. I tell the PRA and the FCA everything that's happening before it happens, and their response to me is that that is extremely unusual and that most of the other banks make their decisions and take their actions first and then decide they'll sort out the regulators next. Now, I think, frankly, that does come back to a potentially combative situation, we have found, appropriately, the regulators to be quite collaborative in helping us to get to the right ownership position, the right capital position, um, and the right structural position to be able to acquire Northern Rock, which, whilst it is still small compared to the banks that we're all really concerned about, nevertheless, of course, is um, significant and needs to be going in the right direction. And so we spend a lot of time making sure that those structures are right. And I, frankly think that with the right relationships and collaboration, regulation can be much more successful. Mm. And I think we need to get to a place where it isn't a, um, a combative, that's the right word, relationship between the banks and their regulation. Yes, it's, obviously that was one of the very big issues um, for Barclays, where they were really roundly criticised for their completely sailing too close to the wind as far as the regulators were concerned. Um, just one of the things you mentioned, Jane Anne, is um, you think there needs to be a level playing field and that capital requirements need to be fair across all the banks to keep them all safe. But I just wonder, Justin, whether you would comment on whether, in fact, don't we want banks to be able to fail? I mean, actually, wouldn't Absolutely. it be a good thing to find a bank that went bust and no one cared, apart from the shareholders? <laughs> and the debt holders and, and the, the depositors debt. and the employees and the local communities. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone else is fine. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, I think, I mean, obviously... Um, it is, a, it is necessary for banks to be able to fail. And I think the, the, the thing we're seeing both uh, through the resolution plans, which I rather agree with Robert on the point that you can ring fence to your blue in the face, but if a merchant bank goes bust in a big group, uh, there's going to be a run on the deposits. Because in, in my days as a group treasurer, it wasn't the one-eighth extra that made the difference. You wanted to get your money back at the end of the three months you'd lent it. And you weren't going to lend it if it kept you awake at night because you had lots of other reasons to stay awake at night. 
um, to do with the business. And uh, I didn't say strange, strange. Um, I think so. Yes, I think they should be able to fail. Just picking up very briefly, there is one particular example at the moment of a different funding structure which is proving enormously effective in some of our more deprived areas and it's the payday lenders who on the whole are entirely equity funded. Wonga has no debt. I don't make a comment on that but it's just an interesting point. I think the second thing that I want to pick up was, um, I I mean, I agree there needs to be a much greater variety of ownership structure. I'm I'm particularly keen over, and it's a generation job again, you've got to take a very, all these solutions we have to take a very, very long-term view. There are no quick fixes. Um, And it is worth noting that the present structure worked pretty well from 1945 till about 2000 or the late 1990s. Some banks went bust, but that's perfectly healthy. Uh, The whole system, we did not have a systemic collapse in Europe during that period. And, uh, you know, that's not a bad length of time without one. I think the other thing, HSBC, um, I used to deal with them. the, The culture, I think one of the key things with HSBC, and David might well disagree with this, is that it had a culture deeply embedded from working in very high-risk parts of the world for about 150 years, something like that. And that led to considerable caution uh, about how it did its banking. And there it comes back to the fact that although they had major problems in Mexico, which I know they were very traumatized by, they on the whole, escaped the disasters because there was a deeply embedded culture in the way the bank worked. Another example in disappeared, long since disappeared, Sir Sigmund Warburg, for example, steadfastly refused to deal with Robert Maxwell, an extraordinarily profitable client for quite a long time, because he simply said, I don't trust him. It was in the culture that you stayed away from people whose word you didn't feel you could take. Right. Well, thank you. We'll take some more questions. Yes, so um, the bishop and... uh, Yes, you. So perhaps we'll do a couple at a time again, if that's all right. I shouldn't mind shouting. Thank you. I wanted to go back to pick up a point about building societies, and Justin just referred to and more community. And I wondered if I could throw in a wild card and just observe that, given the title, How Do You Fix This Mess? One of the things which um, slightly puzzles me, and maybe because I'm just totally wrong about it, not understanding anywhere near enough, is that so much of what's happened with the finance and loss of confidence also coincides with huge energy costs. And if I understand it correctly, the Italian debt of whatever it is, 30 billion euros, is, I think, estimated to be the same amount extra that they are now currently paying from energy than they were pre-2000. In our own case, I think 80% of our own debt is actually matched by the same figure of our energy increase costs. And I wondered, therefore, whether, well, not wishing to take the focus away from the banking issues we've been speaking about, 
when loss of confidence is an issue, when nations and internationally have huge extra costs that we don't sufficiently acknowledge, and maybe that contributes to the loss of confidence and the confusions around it. Thank you. Yes. Chris Alexander, uh, representing myself. Um, I think that's a bit of a conflation. People like to say this is an initiative that's failed, therefore there must have been a lack of competition. I think it's pretty clear that the increase in leverage within the industry over 10 years after the crisis was a response to a fall in the return on assets, a desire to keep return on equity stable for shareholders in the context of returns on assets being driven down by financial liberalisation. So I think it's important not to jump to more competition being the answer. I would argue that the competition was a big part of the problem. Okay, right, thank you. And another question. Um, yes, Helen. I'm Helen Gordon, I'm a member of Parliament at Fish Portland. Obviously, Archbishop Justin knows a lot more about St. Benedict than I do, but I thought that St. Benedict had a rule. And I think this talks about culture is a bit cosy because it's dependent on people like Jane Anne to be nice people in the banks. Whereas, if we want to have banks that are responsible for the rest of society, maybe the rest of us can't wait for the banks all to turn into such nice people, which is why issues about ownership structure and regulation matter. And just to take one example at random, uh, in my constituency, HSBC is leaving poor communities completely unbanked, closing branches, and even reducing to put money into the local credit unions. So I think if you want legal responsibilities on the banks, it's quite a good thing. Right, well, thank you. That's a, that's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, who should we pick on? <laughs> that's a really mean question. Um, Paul Mills, would you like to think about whether is there a link between banking confidence and energy prices? And also the point about credit unions. I, I know you're a bit of a fan of credit unions. Yes, yeah, so on energy costs, um, you're right in the sense that any economy that has an external um, shock increase in cost of energy, could be other things, cost of capital. If it doesn't recognise that and uh, adjust uh, in terms of reducing consumption, for instance, it then feeds into debt somehow. And so um, you're right that um, Europe is sort of structurally increasing its energy costs, for instance, at the moment, whereas the US is structurally reducing them through uh, shale exploration. And this is why the euro and the pound are going to be much, worth much less than the dollar uh, in the decades to come. Um, so I would say that um, the link is there if there isn't a, a, a realisation that's happening and a subsequent adjustment. And unfortunately, because of uh, we have a I'm going to go back to it, a, a debt-based system that uh, facilitates initially uh, you maintain uh, lifestyles and consumption and hope that adjustment will be gradual later. You don't necessarily recognize uh, the need for that adjustment. Uh, part of the problem with the US is that uh, real uh, median earnings uh, haven't really uh, gone up for 30 years. Consumption has been maintained through the household sector, particularly at the lower end, leveraging itself up. And hence you've got this problem now of no one um, willing to extend that debt further and consumption flatline. 
Um, in terms of uh, structure, um, I certainly agree there needs to be both culture and uh, hard limits. Another reason why HSBC has survived this crisis better than others is because it operates on a subsidiarized structure uh, with every country it operates in uh, with a responsible board. They have to fund themselves, have a separate capital base. So the board in headquarters isn't having to monitor all that complex in, uh, information across over 100 countries, I suspect, um, and, and worry about getting every risk sorted out. That's delegated down, and it's a resilient structure. Uh, the problem is that um, universal banking, uh, particularly cross-border, uh, saves money for those uh, banks that do it and can survive uh, because they um, save on treasury and other compliance costs. So we have a choice, not just in the UK, but universally, whether you subsidise uh, banking structure and make it more robust, but it will be uh, expensive. Mm. On building societies, um, yes, it was partly culture, but partly ability to leverage up. So um, uh, I was leading a review of the Building Societies Act. Excuse uh, me, one moment, Paul. There's another vote in the House of Lords. <laughs> can, can I, the Labour whips are faster at telling us than the Conservative whips are telling their members. Um, about, but I've got enough time, we've got eight minutes to get there. Um, it's about half a mile. So actually, especially in same bolt times, it's not terribly fast. Can I just throw in yeah. two points before I rudely have to go? Um, Sorry. Christopher, I think it was, on the issue of competition. Uh, yes, ROA was declining for a decade, ROE was being sustained by more leverage. The problem was the return on equity was too high. Why should this inherently state-protected, highly regulated, low-risk business be producing a return on equity of 25% when the cost of equity was about 8%? Excessive concentration is evident in high economic returns, low innovation, poor customer service, inadequate differentiation between suppliers. I think the banking industry in the UK ticks all of those um, boxes. I think we'd like to see more diversity of ownership, but I think it'll take a long time. Uh, as as the, uh, the Archbishop says, this is a journey. Um, it would be good if the government said where they would ultimately like us to get, which I think is uh, a more diverse uh, banking sector with mutuals, with credit unions, uh, and with less concentration. I think in response... Um, to um, Mr. Baldry. Um, of course, one of the reasons uh, you, you, the banking used to be a very localised activity. There's a bank now very active in this country called Handelsbank, a Swedish bank. They have a basic rule that they don't lend beyond eyesight from the top of the church steeple uh, where the branch is based. This is local community. This is knowing a Raman when they exist in the community, whereas at the moment our major banks, um, uh, and I know this case in Bishop Auckland, but you know, in, in practice the decisions being made in uh, HSBC in Bishop Auckland are not being made in Bishop Auckland. They're being made by a computer or somebody running a computer. Remember, Martin Taylor at Barclays said he'd taken lending power away from branch uh, bankers because he had concluded the evidence showed that computers make... Um, uh, better um, decisions than people. Finally, because we've had a bit of a love-in for Jane Anne, who is a very convincing 
um, Speaker. I do think we need to remember um, that uh, Virgin Money is owned by private equity, private equity uh, in, based in offshore tax havens, and it will require very high returns. And it will be very interesting to see whether the beliefs that Jane Ann holds dearly and sincerely fit neatly with the expectations of people who on the whole expect to exit at two or three times their original capital within less than four years. I will now... <laughs> <laughs> so you have to now listen to the reply, actually, Paul. <laughs> Come on. Vote. No, you have to listen. That's why I've always loved you so much, Paul. <laughs> Thank so, you. But could, may I reply yes, slightly to that? Because, yes. because uh, I'm sorry, is it Sarah? Uh, Helen. Helen, Helen sorry, Goodman, Helen. yes. Helen. Uh, my team would smile. I don't think that uh, I've ever been referred to as a cosy, nice person in public ever before. Um, for me, I think it, the thing that I find really um, uh, interesting is that if I'm honest, I look at the other banks and I don't know what they stand for. I don't see leaders that are coming out saying we're going to do anything other than make a profit. And I'd really like to know what that is because actually it doesn't feel very cosy for me to, to be in a room like this saying the things I believe because I think people can take it cynically. And we get that such a lot. And actually it feels a braver thing to do than to hide behind making profits. And I think if you put more rules in an alpha male environment, I think, Archbishop, you mentioned it earlier, Rules are there to be broken and people find ways to avoid them. I'd much rather have leaders, frankly, that stick their courage to... What is it? Screw your courage to the sticking place. Yeah. And perhaps we shouldn't quote that here, shall um, And, you know, absolutely stick by it and make it happen rather than being told these are the rules you have to live by and know what institution I'm investing in. Because I don't see any difference at all between RBS, Lloyd's... Barclays and HSBC, I'm really sorry to say, in terms of what I think I'm a customer of, other than an efficient institution, hopefully. Okay. Well, I think we are actually out of time, I'm really sorry to say. Um, we could carry on all night, but I would like to give the final word to Justin to try and wrap up. And perhaps um, Helen Goodman had the right question. Will banks be nice? Can they ever be nice? <laughs> I start by believing in human sin, so probably not. <laughs> but um, I, do think it's, I do think the history of banking, and particularly Tony mentioned the, uh, some of the Quaker banks of the 70s, the way they behaved in times past, and I think there has been a long history of banks seeking to do the right things in some areas. The big problem we've got, and it's been mentioned, I'm also a very strong supporter of credit unions, is that in the end the banks will not make money in some of the more deprived areas, and either they have to be compelled to go there, or they should be warmly and um, compellingly encouraged to help other people bank those areas because efficient banking in those areas is the only way in which those areas have a chance of regeneration. Mm, thank you. Well, um, I'm delighted to tell you that there's a drink and a canopy next door to the right-hand side here, so please do join us if you can. And um, following this session, we will be talking with the Bible Society and Christians in Parliament about what further we want to do by way of a parliamentary inquiry to try and come up with some very real solutions and recommendations for the government, hopefully to take very seriously. So thank you all very much for coming. Thank you to all our panelists.